Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Now, as you all know uh, by now, likely, I'm the first one to preach patience and sticking by your guns over the long term with an aquarium. You know, developing a plan for the aquarium, executing on it, and evolving it. Of course, every once in a while, I'll pull off some kind of radical move on an aquarium that's been operating for a while just to do something different. More than a tweak, maybe it's what can be defined as a pivot or a directional change. And it can be radical and exciting. Not sure what prompts it. Maybe it's scaper's remorse or something, dismay with the setup, boredom, divine inspiration. Doesn't happen often, just every once in a while. You ever done a radical you know, shift, a radical change on an already established aquarium? You know, the one that was going to be the epistogram of Biotope and then suddenly it evolved into a wild live bearer tank or the African cichlid tank that mutated into a brackish water aquarium. You know, stuff like that. I was thinking about this the other day when I was doing a water change at one of my blackwater aquariums. I was thinking to myself, man, it would be so easy to turn this, you know, kerosene-dominated Amazonian region-themed tank into an Asian-themed tank. Just a few little tweaks, and yeah, I almost went for it. I think that's what's interesting about botanical-style aquariums in particular. If you're not strictly setting up one of these tanks as a hardcore biotopic representation or you know, using Asian plants and have the urge to switch over to Amazonian fishes, you've got a certain degree of generic flexibility that you can work with. What causes such rapid shifts in our thinking? Sometimes it's, you know, thinking about a particular species of fish that does it. Maybe the work of a fellow fish geek or seeing a pick from nature, something like that. Once in a while, these motivations inspire me to edit or even jump in and completely, you know, do a wholesale change in plans. And seldom does it involve tearing an entire tank apart. Most of the time, I simply edit what I have to sort of scratch the itch. Yeah, editing's pretty easy. A little movement of the wood stack, a change in the orientation of some botanicals, adding some different ones, you know, substituting here and there, shifting substrate around, stuff like that. Easy. And when you're swapping out one blackwater, you know, habitat for another from a different part of the world, for example, it's not really that difficult. We have that degree of flexibility when it comes to utilizing various botanicals in our aquariums. We have the advantage of being able to reconfigure our entire tank and its mission with surprisingly little, you know, minimal effort. Now, think about it more deeply for just a second. What exactly is the purpose of an aquascape in the aquarium besides aesthetics? I mean, it's to provide fishes with a comfortable environment that makes them feel at home, right? Exactly. So when was the last time you really looked into where your fishes live, or I should say, how they live in the habitats from which they come? The information that you can garner from these kind of observations and research is amazing. Now, one of the key takeaways that you can make is that many freshwater fishes like structure in their habitats. Unless you're talking about large ocean-going fishes or fishes that live in enormous schools like herring or smelt, fishes like a certain type of structure, be it rock, wood, roots, etc., Structure provides a lot of things, namely protection, shade, food, and spawning or nesting areas. And of course, the structure that we're talking about in our aquariums is not just rocks and wood. It's all sorts of botanical materials and leaves that create microhabitats in all sorts of places within the aquarium. We can utilize 
you know, all of these things to facilitate more natural behaviors from our fishes. So yeah, think about how fishes act in nature, what motivates them, what attracts them. They tend to be attracted to areas where food supplies are relatively abundant. I know that's no surprise. You know, food supplies requiring little expenditure of energy in order to satisfy their nutritional needs. Insects, crustaceans, and yeah, tiny fishes tend to congregate around floating plants and masses of algae and fallen botanical items, you know, seed pods, leaves, etc. So it's only natural that our subject fishes would be attracted to these areas. I mean, who wouldn't want to have easy access to the buffet line, right? Another interesting phenomenon that any fisherman will tell you is that fishes like to gather under trees. Not only do trees provide a respite from the bright light, they provide an opportunity to grab a meal of insects, fruit, or other materials which might fall from the trees throughout the day. You know, alochthonous input. We've talked about that a million times here. Many fishes take food from what are known as alochthonous sources, i.e. food that's originated from sources outside of the aquatic habitat, like insects, other invertebrates, plant parts that fall from nearby trees. Like, you ever see those films where, like, pakus are chewing on, you know, fruit that falls in the water? I've even seen, you know, videos and pictures of arowana, you know, jumping out of the water to take a frog off a branch, you know, by providing both food and shelter, the waters under overhanging trees and vegetation are an interesting place for fishes to simply hang out. And then again, there are those terrestrial insects, which form a huge part of the diet of many fishes. Yeah, terrestrial insects are a very important and significant part of the diet of many small caracins. In fact, a study of some hemogrammous species indicates that a whopping 96% of their stomach contents were terrestrial insects, mainly, wait for it, ants. This is not actually surprising when you think about it because ants are ridiculously abundant in tropical forests and particularly in the central Amazon basis where, basin where you know, scientific surveys have estimated that they may constitute as much as three quarters of the biomass of the soil fauna. That's a lot of ants. In addition to providing a potentially rich source of energy for kerosens, ants tend to become vulnerable to predation once they fall into the water. So they're easy pickings for tetras. And they're clumsy, you know. Ants fall off a tree, knocked off by wind, rain, or just sheer clumsiness, and that's an easy meal for somebody. And the predominance of ants in the gut content, you know, analysis of hemogrammas, hephasobicon, and other tetras, to me, indicates that these species feed naturally on the surface of the water, given that these insects tend to float and, f and flail away on the surface when they fall into the water. Interesting insight, right? So the alochthonous inputs of tropical streams are really fascinating for the main reason that they're some of the easiest food items in many fishes' diets for us to replicate as naturally as possible. Now, we've discussed before that, you know, some popular food items like bloodworms represent an excellent, highly realistic representation of the insect larvae and, uh, that come from these habitats that fishes tend to consume. Perhaps most interesting to us as botanical-style aquarium people are or what are known as epiphytes. And, now, these are organisms which grow on the surface of plants, branches, or other substrates and derive their nutrients from the surrounding environment. They're important in nutrient cycling and uptake in both nature and the aquarium, adding to the biodiversity and serving as an important food source for many species of fishes. Hello. Now, in the case of our aquatic habitats, like streams, ponds, and inundated forests, epiphytes are abundant, and many fishes will spend large amounts of time foraging the bio cover on you know, tree trunks, branches, leaves, and other botanical materials that fall into the water. Although most animals use leaves and tree branches for shelter and not directly as a food item, grazing on the epiphytic growth on them is really important. Some organisms, such as nematodes and chironomids, again bloodworms, will dig into the leaf structures and feed on the tissues themselves, as well as fungi and bacteria in and found, you know, that are found in and among them. And of course, these organisms in turn become part of the diet of many fishes. 
and the resulting detritus produced by the processed and decomposed plant matter is considered by many aquatic ecologists to be an you know, extremely important food source for many fishes, especially in areas like Amazonia and Southeast Asia, where detritus is considered an essential factor in the food webs of these habitats. Really cool stuff. So if you observe the behavior of many of your fishes in the aquariums, like caracins, cyprinids, laracarids, and others, you'll see that in between feedings, they spend an awful lot of time picking at stuff on the bottom of the tank. In a botanical-style aquarium, this is a pretty common occurrence, and I believe an important health benefit of this type of system. I'm of the opinion that the botanical-style aquarium, complete with its decomposing leaves and seed pods, can serve not only as a structural habitat, but as a sort of buffet for many fishes, even those whose primary food sources are known to be things like insects and worms and such. Detritus and the organisms within it can provide an excellent supplemental food source for fishes. And it's well known that in many habitats, like inundated forests, etc., fishes will adjust their feeding strategies to utilize the available food sources at different times of the year, like the dry season, etc., and it's also known that many fish fry feed actively on bacteria and fungi in these habitats. So I suggest once again that the blackwater or botanical style aquarium could be an excellent sort of nursery for many fishes. So where does this leave us in terms of creating and or editing an aquascape for our fishes in the aquarium? Well, for one thing, we can again look to nature to just to see what is material wise that falls into the water. In many wild habitats, of course, it's leaves, seed pods, branches, etc., all sorts of stuff. And what we know about these, you know, materials and how they're oriented in the water after their fall, we know that when a tree falls into the water, gravity, current, and wind influence the way it lays on the bottom of the stream. Oftentimes in shallow streams, the branch extends partially out of the water, kind of like, you know, what we do in aquascaping, right? Yet somehow a little less contrived, I guess. As aquarists, we put an amazing amount of time trying to achieve the perfect placement for wood, when the reality is that in nature, it's decidedly random. And is there not beauty and randomness despite our pursuit of, you know, golden ratio and all that stuff? Just because, you know, last year's big contest winner had the perfect orientation, ratio, and alignment of his manzanita branch or whatever doesn't mean that it's a real representation of the natural functionality of randomness. Bottom line, maybe we don't need to stress out so much in our placement of wood in the aquarium, uh, striving for some, you know, artistic interpretation. Maybe we'd achieve something altogether different and cool if we just sort of randomly drop the wood into the tank and go from there. Maybe? Could you handle that? Could you, could you edit a tank by taking something out and dropping it in randomly? But again, ask yourself though, is there not a true beauty in that randomness in nature? Isn't this what Aquarius like a mono we're really trying to stress rather than preaching this rigid adherence to some formula of placement? Can't you see the beauty in replicating those kind of scenes that we share with you all the time, the pictures that Ty Streitman and uh, um, Mike Tucanardi take in, in, down in Amazonia? Really amazing aggregations of materials that just randomly fall into streams. So bringing it back into the idea of editing our own work, it's remarkable how simply reevaluating your tank in the context of this functional aesthetic thing that we talk about can give you new ideas, new inspiration, and purpose. In the end, it's all about what we love as hobbyists. The ability to justify a change of heart, you know, that's part of the fun. Yeah, I've had this at times when I've woke up and turned on you know, tank on its end into something totally different. And it almost always starts in my weird world with me thinking about nature and how to better replicate a certain aspect of it in my aquarium. These quick edits and pivots are pretty fun, but I suppose they're almost a shock trauma of sorts. One minute, you know, your tank's all leaf litter and spider wood. The next minute, your tank is filled with mopani wood and palm fronds. Crazy. And it is kind of fun too, just doing different stuff on the spur of the moment once in a while. I actually love that sort of thing. It prompts a spontaneous creativity uh, that's a distinct departure from our like uber patient typical selves in this world, isn't it? 
On the other hand, the best way to go is to simply set up another tank. <laughs> of course, that assumes a few things, doesn't it? Like, you know, financial ability and space and a understanding significant other. And of course, that's how multiple tank syndrome starts. It's a dangerous sort of thought, isn't it? Stay spontaneous, stay patient, stay creative, stay engaged, stay excited, stay inspired, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tenant.